Good. Well, that's a figure's given us new strategies to exploit. But um, let's open up the discussion for everybody here. Um, and question back to the next. Just a quick one on that last one. You said it's a cost, but it can, in some situations, become an overwhelming cost if the state imprisons too many people. For example, in Brazil, the gang system is emerging as a failure. It's entirely the product of imprisoning young men for very minor crimes. With the result of a whole criminal network being created in prison. So it's actually, you know, in some cases can be vastly outweighing the, the, the benefits of imprisoning people in some cases. So, yeah, just a comment. Um, yeah, that, that's not a comment against what I've said. No, no, not at all. I just said. Yes, I mean, it's, it's very well known that prisons can be. Um, a school of crime, that is, you learn and you make connection with, with others, right? And since they are in prison there, you also resolve the first question, these are true criminals. So I don't have the issue of getting it wrong, you know, looking in, in, the, in the yellow pages and finding something by, by mistake. And, uh, the, 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 there was uh, this Canadian woman who called another she found in the yellow pages she read guns for hire and she called them up and asked them whether they could bump her husband off uh, and they turned out to be staging fights for cinema this guy. So, <laughs> so there are these risks when you want to commit a crime <laughs> and, but uh, while the Prisons as training grounds, as making networks are known. Prisons as an accreditation system, they're less well known. So, for instance, good hearted people who take ex con out of prison, put them in uh, one nice environment so that they can find a life and so on, they're perfect for other uh, con you know, uh, criminals to come and select potential partners because they find them all in, you know, next to a church being very pious. Good example of that. So, obviously, if you incarcerate an enormous amount of people, you are generating uh, the advantage, you know, disadvantages for them. Can I ask a question which isn't to do, because I'm slightly worried um, you did such a good wiggle at this talk that we may end up dominating the discussion. So, is there a question for someone? Thanks. I have a question for Bonnie. Yes. So, um, talking about the wiggles and stuff, <laughs> uh, there's a, uh, maybe uh, all these wiggles will make people less bored as you were me measuring, but one thing that I haven't seen you uh, measuring, or at least reporting that you measure is does this make them more frustrated? Is it possible to measure that? Because if, if someone keeps changing the position of the OK button or something like that, I, I, it's not that I'm not paying attention to the thing, it's that I've sort of given up because you don't give me the option that I want. And the option is to say, well, when I install this app, I'd like to make it run without revealing my location, for example. I can only take uh, all or nothing. Either I install the app and I get all these damn things, or uh, I just stop running at all. And I have to run it because of my work or something. So I just click OK because, you know, fuck it, I can't do what I want to do anyway. And it's not that I'm not paying attention. It's that even if I pay attention, I can't do what I want. And therefore, <coughs> Even all this wiggling to say, just read, read, read. But I know how many, how many times I read, I will still not be able to do whatever I want, and my frustration will go up a lot. 
Yeah, so there's a whole area called dual task interference, and that's the thing. You're trying to get something done, and this interferes with you just trying to get a thing done. Your boss wants you to get whatever done, and you're just trying to click through, and you really have to accept or, or not, and sometimes part of it just is fishy to you, and you can't say yes, this, and this, but not this. And Yeah, I, I, I don't know where the balance is, because there are a lot of things we can do to draw attention that are just annoying. And you're just, we're wasting everybody's time because you're just trying to get your task done. But there are other times where, you know, you really need to signal this one really does matter, <laughs> you know, compared to these nuisance ones. And I don't know exactly how to find that balance and, and figure uh, that my, out. My point is that I'm willing to pay attention to the thing if only I also know the options that I'm willing to give. And the only options I have is take the lead. And in that case, what's the point of reading the whole the And there, and there's a lot more literature also that if it explains why this is important, then you pay more attention to it, giving the rationale, and that's part of the CETA, the the training and, and all of that. And and there's just so so much that we can micromanage, you know, for a little thing that the the corporate guy can send out an email to everybody, hey, this phishing message is going around and you shouldn't click on it because of this whatever consequence. They can fight one little fire at a time and it's just it's a huge problem, but you're exactly right. Well, it would be nice to have something where, if, so first of all, so that I could ask in reverse, if I reciprocating to the program that's asking us why that's well. An interactive well, thing. to me, because I have another requirement that you're not addressing. I really like that. Well, you know, there's details, right? A lot of them, the warning messages, like we did for this, again, the Batman EEG study, the Chrome browser warning, this is may not be the site you're looking for. That it used to just be simple, you could accept or reject, but you know, now there's get more details and it gives more explanation if you want to understand better. And so I think that's a level that developers could go to fairly easily. More detail if you want to understand this. And if you don't care, then you either accept or ignore. No, I like that. I'm taking some notes here. Thanks. Um, have you considered that habituation by itself is not necessarily a bad thing? Um, I mean, the problem here is people who get habituated before they understand what it means and then know how to make the correct decision and then repeatedly make a bad decision and that gets reinforced over time. But, you know, I'm willing to bet that any of us are you know, habituated to mostly security warnings, which just means that we're more efficient when we know to close the page. And so I wouldn't necessarily, you know, include, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that habituation by itself should be, you know, the variable that you're looking at. Instead, you should, you know, really focus on outcomes. So it's back to that designing for novices or experts, that you want to have the software easy enough that the most basic person can figure it out, but once you know it, quit hand, you know, holding my hand, let's give me the fast ways, let me do the shortcuts. And again, trying to figure out, so how can we determine who our user is if they still need the hand holding? Or if it's an expert, you can just skip on through, don't waste my time, I understand the risk, and I don't need you to, to catch my attention again, because I don't get it yet. That it's a big problem, and you're exactly right. Ross. Well, of course, there's an economics aspect to this too, because the great majority of warnings on planet Earth are there for the benefit of the warner rather than the warnee, <laughs> and the warnee is being perfectly rational and ignoring them. Mm -hmm. Cover their bases, right? Can't so, sue me, I gave you the warning. <laughs> so, so what we really need to do is to look for mechanisms uh, that are strategy-proof in the sense that um, people warn us won't be tempted to waste their time with us, or rather a mechanism such that it's easy to become habituated to nonsense warnings from lawyers, 
but there's some mechanism that can only be invoked by non-liars to transmit real warnings to people. You're probably not the wrong problem. I have a question for Brian. Brian, um, so for in, in the EB, in eBay scenario, it seems that um, reputation might not have that much of an effect in the sense that it's easy to switch users. Like you could. You could simulate one um, to be one buyer and then switch to another. <coughs> you could test um, the sort of handicap uh, principle that Diego was talking about by forcing um, forcing people to buy into being a buyer, in the sense that um, it would it would force you to grow a peacock's tail, for example. Um, so it would force you to. It would force you to have an actual sacrifice or cost in being a seller. So I'm wondering, have you thought about adjusting the um, the buy-in for sellers and then testing for honesty against that? Um, this is an interesting point. Um, I think it's important to look at exactly how that that feedback uh, process works, and then try to potentially develop different um, sort of immediate incentives based on, on that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's sort of a, you know, that down the line, that, that's definitely interesting to look at different configurations uh, like that. But um, I think right now we're trying to just look uh, primarily at the sort of immediate role of um, incentives right at the point of making the edit, and then, and then later trying to build in the repetition is that's something for the future. Presumably right. putting down a big deposit, which would be forfeited if you were artists. Thank you. Would you like to comment on that same issue? No, I, I quite agree. I mean, so what you just said is, uh, could be one such way to put a deposit. You would do it only if you think that the transaction is going to be yeah. through. So, so um, back on the, on the question of um, uh, warnings, and I just want to respond kind of like to the topic last point, which is I, I'm always sort of puzzled in the um, there's one set of circumstances where you're trying to measure, given that we know what the desired outcome should be from a particular warning, do we get the user to pay attention to it or not? And I think much more interesting is is the ambiguity when we actually don't know. I think that properly constructed, 100% of cases are ambiguous. <coughs> the only reason that the warning is there is we don't know what's going on. There's, there's a very good episode of Yes Minister many, many years ago where the minister is talking to Bernard, the secretary, and the guy's going on and on and on. He says, you're waffling, minister. And Bernard says, yes. And he says, why are you waffling, Bernard? Because it's my job, Minister. And I think that's the job's warning. It's the waffle. <laughs> we know the good. We, do. we know the bad. We just make it go away. Yeah, so um, I don't know if Adrian's here yet, but she'll probably talk about this in her talk tomorrow, which is one of the reasons why, yeah, they say that, you know, so with, for instance, the malware warnings or phishing warnings, for a site to get on that blacklist, there's a pretty high degree of confidence for it to be on there. And so then people ask, well, why don't you just lock those? And the reason is um, they don't want someone to then use a different web browser, which doesn't lock it, and then say, well, you know, Chrome, you know, Chrome's doing a bad job of protecting me. They want to get people to understand why they shouldn't go to that site. And so willingly, 
rather than just dictate to them and then have them figure out who falls there's, the there's still ambiguity in preserving the ambiguity and not transferring it. And then people say, you know, why are you even showing me stuff that you don't want me to go to? That's just not logical. They, they went there. Right? You, need to, you need to tell them why you're not taking that there. Right? If, if you just say, I'm not loading this page, then you're not keeping it in a way that helps yeah. the user. We've, we've basically got work with a tool that, that only, which is called Safe Search, which only shows the site. And basically, 9 out of 10 people, 9 problem. out of 10 times, want yeah. that. It's not a problem that the problem warnings he's talking about are solved. The problem he's talking about is people have clicked to go to that page. This isn't it searching or removing items from search. People have tried to go someplace, and you need to tell them why you're not letting them get there. And if you just block it, that, and, and they don't understand why not to go there, they'll try to, you know, I have a question about brain science. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, to the two brain scientists. Uh, one of the things we found is that a major distinguisher of oblivious risk-taking is people who are computer experts versus security experts. The people who have a lot of expertise in computing or perceived self-expertise, even though sometimes that's like, oh my god, I play Halo on Legendary. Um, and, but the experts are really good at it. So this is a, a, a blatantly naive question. Ready? So don't laugh. When we develop expertise, do we change? Can you see that in the brain? Can you see different balances, different parts of the brain being used? Does that change how we respond physically? And, have you, and is that really significant? If you can measure that and see how they respond to the different kinds of warnings and, and behaviors? Uh, uh, this is very uh, straightforward and short answer is yes. If there is a change in behavior, it has to have a brain correlate. So, uh, and, and, but how it manifests itself is slightly different. So if it is a visual type expertise, so suppose you want to become an expert in cars and various kinds of cars, then uh, uh, what happens is uh, the, the area of the brain that Bonnie showed, the, the, uh, some parts of those areas, so there, with expertise, you show greater activity in those brain areas. Whereas if you're talking about a high-level expertise, like, say, analytical ability or playing a strategic game very well, then you're using a front, uh, a part, of, uh, a part of the front of the brain, where expertise is often associated with reduced activity. So uh, there is a kind of some kind of understanding that something that requires you to uh, and requires you to spend more effort and, and use more uh, cognitive resources. If you become an expert, you're using less and less of that, that, that effort. Whereas if you're becoming an expert in a perceptual domain, then you show greater activity. So expertise is represented differently depending on the task. Can I ask a question? Frontal lobes were lighting up in, in, in your warning task. Um, is it part of the social brain? Are people, can you tell from which bit of the brain is active whether or not it's perceived to be a social task when a, when a, a warning flashes up? Uh, there's a, a variety. And again, the, the front, the, the PFC, the prefrontal cortex. Again, we joke about it at my house. I've got a bunch of kids, and when they do something stupid, I'm like, it's your PFC. It's not developed yet. They don't understand the risk-taking and the planning and whatever, and some of the executive function and decision-making and foresight. Um, so that, that's one of the areas that I talk about. Um, I mean, 
I'm just back from a social brain conference. So deal, I mean, the, the understanding we came to was that the social brain really is the whole brain. There is no one such structure. But in the traditional way of looking at the, 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 the areas that Bonnie was showing, DLTFC is not part of the social brain. It's the medial prefrontal cortex. But I wouldn't really hold this very seriously. Hi. Um, I've got a question for Bonnie. I'm just thinking, wouldn't you, even though they're showing that you're getting more attention initially to these the slight changes in the, in the message, would that make it more difficult for people to detect other dodgy sites and dodgy messages? You know, you get these little things jumping up and down in the corner of your screen that can win a million pounds or something if you click on it in time. What about the generalised ability of that? Does it, are we going to lose these signs in, in, in everything else and then become worse at detecting dodgy sites because you've mucked around so much with the genuine ones? Yes, so that's a fantastic question and we've thought about that because a lot of the big companies, and again, Adrienne will probably talk about this tomorrow, we chatted with her about it, that you know, Google, for example, Chrome browser has a certain look and feel and you trust that and it's the, the crazy advertising on the side that looks really shady that you know it's trying to catch your attention with the again a lot of animations or or movement or whatever that you think i don't want to go there and so again the professional organizations that want to maintain that look and feel but somehow get enough of your attention that there is a, a trade-off and i'm not sure where where the balance lies so again this is kind of stage one that we're tuning it out yes we've proved that all right here's how we can not tune it out but again, it looks kind of shady if we do. And again, maybe maybe just a little jiggle is okay. I don't know. But uh, I, again, I'm not a developer that has to worry about millions of users. Um, and I need expertise from them, certainly, to, to figure out how to actually apply some of the things we're finding. Because I think you're exactly right. It's a fine line. Question, yes, I have a question for this market. Um, I, um, I think I did not quite understand your approach associating certain places with rewards and others with non-rewards and see whether they are mimicked or infected. And also because this first question you asked on, on the last slide, if you look at online learning people click on things people have clicked on more frequently because, and they do that because they expect a reward. But at the point they do it, they actually don't know yet whether this will be rewarded. And sometimes it is not rewarding. Sometimes there are these cascades of people who are clicking on something because uh, they think it is rewarding, but actually it never was and they're disappointed. So is there a way uh, to look at this also from, from your perspective? where people might expect um, a reward from invitation rather than knowing that it will be rewarded. Right, so there are multiple questions in there. Right? So the first one is the experimental bit. So I, I glossed over the actual experimental manipulation that people were actually playing a card game with different people and some faces. And uh, we would, uh, the people would win with some faces more and lose with some other faces. So that's how we condition. And in the test phase, uh, we were uh, we showed people uh, the faces that you won against and the faces that you lost against, and all everybody's smiling at you, and we're recording from from the, the smiling muscles. So that's the experimental question. The more tricky question is your second one: is whether 
uh, the behavior, when, when I click like on something, whether the same rules apply, whether my liking a particular web page is a manifestation of the same mimicry uh, process that goes on in say facial mimicry or, or postural mimicry, that one I don't know. I haven't done a within subject experiment. But if I would imagine there are two things. So one is I might like something because I'm expecting a particular reward. But I might also like it if I see that seven out of my Facebook friends have also liked it. So I think that there are different kinds of following uh, her behavior. And uh, uh, I, I'm actually wondering how I can transform my kind of reward EMG experiment into a manipulating reward value in, in, in a kind of online setting and see which one leads to more. Which one would you like, uh, would you copy more or like more? Is somewhere, uh, would you copy something more if your friends have liked it? Or would you copy something more if that's like a video game that, or, or, or that you really think you would get uh, win a lot of money with? So which aspects of reward, which kinds of reward drive more mimicry type behavior? I don't know the answer to that. Sorry. Okay. Um, I've got two, if you'll forgive me. Uh, a quick one, maybe for this minute. Um, do you have any speculations about why this cross-reversal um, between um, putting yourselves in the other's shoe and mimicking them? Do you have any, uh, you, did, you just, you, you presented it, and it was a wonderful result, and I'm sure you've got it, but it's very counterintuitive, of course. Do you have any speculations about why that is? And then we'll come up with one the, the, there is a, it's not quite a speculation, it's a, there is some very good uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation data shows that if you are, uh, if you are uh, creating a partial lesion in a part of the brain called the, the right temporal parietal junction, then uh, it, it, it basically inhibits, uh, it, it, it inhibits uh, your uh, mimicry machinery. So in a way, there, there seems to be, uh, so the answer lies in neurophysiology. It's a hexal gate, basically. Yeah. It, it's a, yeah. it, it's a seesaw, yeah, it, it's kind of a seesaw, yeah. Okay, I, I quickly one as well. I, I think one of the things I've been getting from the, from the discussion here is that you're only looking at the moment at attention, and I think you, you really need to follow that up with understanding. And, and tying these things in, when people get in and understand it, get, when something gets their attention, are they then also getting understanding? Because all you're doing at the moment, I think, is looking at attention. Do you have plans to look at understanding once they get, once you've got their attention? Is it, is it that people are following up the attention with understanding, or is it just it grabs their attention, but they're still going, click OK, as, as Frank said. You know, my goal is click OK. And it doesn't matter whether I pay attention warning or not, what I'm looking for is the okay button. Yeah, so we haven't studied that, but that seems like a really natural place to go, that now you're not ignoring it, you didn't just click away, but do you really understand what it was, and would it be helpful to have more details so you can understand that? One of the things we talked about, because um, we've done a fishing studies with eye tracking, we've done a variety of EEG things, and if we could calculate for people the likelihood of something bad happening to you if you ignore this warning. You know, if that could be quantified as part of the explanation, then that'd be so great, but there's so much ambiguity and uncertainty, you know, for any of these warnings, and there's, you know, millions of warnings out there, so which ones do we pick and, and try to quantify maybe and, and instruct people? And it's a vast field. As a design lesson from that, if the user can decide 
what sorts of things need their attention, I think that's better than giving the power to gain attention to the people who are providing. It goes back to Ross's point about, is this the warner or the warnee who is benefiting? And therefore, is it the warner or the warnee who decides what needs their attention? So more user-driven, I think, would be helpful for for yeah. users. <laughs> I, I want this sort of warning to catch my attention. I don't want that sort of warning to catch my attention. Yes. Well, there's, there's, there's so many questions from every direction. If anyone's got a question from Michelle or for Diego, perhaps we should go back to this. Can I ask a question myself? Yes. <laughs> Just on, on the herding stuff, because I've done a bit of work on herding. Um, do you look at it at all from a sort of Bayesian perspective, this idea of a herding externality that at a certain point if you see others doing something and you bounce the probabilities, then you go down saying, you sort of blindly follow the herd, but it's still sort of rational in a Bayesian sense. And for Bonnie, um, do you link your stuff into the reward prediction error sort of stuff from Wolfram Schultz? You know that people are responding to change, and so you've got the neural activations in response to changes. Because it's, it's sort of you, what you were saying reminded me a bit of that more predictionary literature. I'm sure I, we can chat over lunch, mm. but we did that more with our EEG study oh, with the gambling tasks and predicting behavior in the future, mm. but we didn't do it in this fMRI study. Mm. And uh, for herding, I have not done any online social behavior mm. experiment, but uh, yes, we would be using Bayesian predictive model to, mm. to, uh, to analyze that. But uh, the key thing would be to separate out these different kinds of rewards, and that's mm. that's where it gets uh, tricky, that which are the parameters that we vary. Because mm. it's a bit of a literature in economics on yeah. herding with those things. I would like to chat with you. Yeah. Scott's got a question. After Diego. Um, so I find like in work, in revolutionary groups or in families, things like benevolence, is taking a bullet for someone or helping someone, exposing yourself to risk with no expectation of reciprocity, trumps all the other indicators of trust. In the criminal world, would that be considered just to be a sucker or does it also have the same capacity to trump everything else? What do you mean Trump, Trump, everything else? That is, even if you're incompetent, for example, in the workplace, uh, if you show that you're willing to take punishment, say, for someone else, that'll probably trump competence. If you're incompetent in a family, the fact that you know that you're someone is willing to expose themselves to risk benevolently, that rules out the importance of really competence, reliability, and all the other things. In the criminal world, are you just considered a sucker if you do that, or does it have the same ability to override the other thing? Depends who's doing the judging, I suppose. I mean, if you were the target of the bullet, then you're pretty great on the baseball. But everybody else. Can you speak up? But everybody else, I don't know, but I don't really have example to, to go on or evidence to answer one way or another. I would think loyalty is quite appreciated precisely because it's scarce. Right? So it, it would be uh, a positive sign. But that's a guess. Um, your, all the things that you have listed as trust building are very expensive measures. And in a way, that's actually the complete opposite of how in the non-criminal environment, in the honest everyday environment, the whole purpose of trust is to reduce the cost of transactions and make everyone better off. 
So do you think that what you're pointing out here is, is for, for honest everyday transactions, but should we just go for a straight reversal of the tactics that are being used to move on? Sorry, I, uh, in, in, uh, All the trust signals you yes. list are actually, for the participants involved, incredibly expensive. Right? If I'm promoting competence, my economic performance is going to be reduced. Mm. I can trust them more, but overall my economic performance is reduced, um, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in, in normal, everyday transactions, the point of trust is to reduce the transaction cost between mm -hmm. participants, because heavyweight enforcement and policing is very expensive. So I'm, I'm just trying to, to, to say that, well, that kind of criminal economics doesn't really work for everyday economics. Um, is that? Well, <clears throat> yes. I mean, we, we one interesting thing of looking at criminals is that you see the world deprived of the institutions from which we benefit every day, right? In, in, including our social norms. I don't mean just physical institutions or, or state institutions. So, so it's true. We, we, we don't see these things. However, uh, there, is, there is a big gray area in which we, many of us, engage in small acts of deviance which are illuminated by some of, the, of these strategies. For instance, in, in a, another paper, we found that uh, teenagers who uh, deviate in some way prefer everything else the same, other teenagers who also de deviate, right? Uh, partly because this means they have bad information on each other, so they are less likely to turn each other in. Or, uh, countries in which there is a, a high rate of tax evasion or a, a high rate of small-time cheating, like my country of birth, for instance. You don't need enforcement. The mafia is just a, a freak waste of bullets because people can agree against the authorities simply on the basis of these minute deviations. So if you incur some of these deviations and people know about it in the natural course of life, it doesn't cost any extra. So it's not, there isn't such a, a deep divide. Here I made the, the thing look extreme in one way or the other, but there is a gray area in which these strategies are used by us. No. Hi, I'd uh, like to go on the on the warnings. Um, I don't really understand why you focus only on, on attention and why the, you seek just to increase the amount of attention spent by the user, regardless of what the warning is. Because, well, for me, attention equates to the time being spent and something not being uh, wasted on the warnings. And then you you use the compliance pressure that you have, so to speak, faster. And I think one reason why people get attracted to warnings is because warnings are uh, an interaction that's cheap enough to be, you know, dealt with on a daily basis. Whereas if you have something that is more expensive, like Windows DLC, for instance, like And why not instead try and focus on the interaction cost on uh, making a bad decision or a good decision? For instance, a Chrome uh, warning, I think one thing, why is why it's very good to prevent you from running malware is because running malware costs you more time and effort than it costs you not to run it. And then if you don't have actually any idea as to whether something is good or not, 
um, why not consider the very useful time and try and help us on making sure that the user knows what is being happened, so make things more visible, maybe more memorable, so they can trace back to actually uh, this uh, that decision that they made in the future when they notice something happened. Yeah, so that's actually a good long-term path. So we're just doing the, the first step. We know people ignore them, and so we're trying to figure out why. And one of the reasons is your brain is being energy efficient. And so the next step in our, in our phase three is, so what are some things we can do to have them pay attention? And I think the next step following that is giving them the option more user-driven to find out their actual risk, some of the reasons that we're doing this. Uh, this warning here is because it could be very bad for you or it could be just a tiny bit bad. And again, people's attention span is pretty small if it's interfering with what they're just trying to get done. So again, this lab experiment we're running this week, some of the, you know, if you're gonna install an extension in Chrome, it's gonna tell you the developers of these extensions have to put in the manifest the types of things it's going to access. And so some seem legitimate and some don't. And so we're gonna track their behavior that now that we know it's gonna catch their attention, now that they should be actually reading these, are they gonna pay attention to the content? But I think, again, the discussion's been here, it'd be great if it could be user-driven to get more information when you're uncertain. If you're the expert and you already know that it matters or it doesn't, you know, then, then you can click through without having to read a bunch of stuff that you don't care about. Again, like a EULA that you just scroll down so you can click the accept. Um, that it's, you know, as, as desired by the user, tell me more so I can understand the real risk. Um, do you know Adrienne Potterfeld's PhD in physics? Because she actually has a she has a process by which she decides what type of problems it is. And really, if you're just looking to uh, access a specific website, then surely you don't need a warning that consumes a lot of attention. Whereas if you want to read all of personal data, the user then wants to spend your attention. What I'm just a bit um, surprised about is that you, you don't have any strategy right now to do sex. And I don't think that it's just a good approach to always take the attention of the user and then see how they react. I think it's better to try and understand when you want to waste their time because otherwise they might just you know, go away before the end of the study. Yeah, so we've cited some of her work, um, and I know she's going to be here, so maybe I'll, I'll chat with her about this other one that maybe I don't know as well to give us some guidelines. So thank you for that. Okay, I think let's wind it up there. It's been a great morning. Um, we had an hour and a half of lunch. This was beautiful outside as it was when we came in, so we can take it outside. So thanks everybody very much.